This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Case Hera, author of the book Empire Ascendant, The British World, Race, and the Rise of Japan, 1894 to 1914. Case, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Yes, of course. I am a I'm a historian of empire and international relations, currently based at Utrecht University in the Netherlands, where um, I'm originally from. Uh, before that, I was a, I was a PhD student at the uh, the London School of Economics and in in London. And this book is is in one sense kind of an outgrowth of the. PhD project that I undertook there. It's a fascinating project to me because on the one hand, there's been, uh, you know, some work done on uh, uh, relations between Great Britain and Japan during this period. And yet uh, you have a very interesting approach that really uh, shifts the focus while at the same time really bringing a, a whole new layer of understanding to those relations. What was it that led you to focus upon this topic for your dissertation? So, yeah, as I, as I mentioned, the, the, the project originally emerged out of my PhD dissertation. And uh, I mean, I've often found also talking to colleagues that you start out thinking that your project is going to be one thing. And as you really delve into the sources and go further into the material, it, it metamorphosizes into something quite different. And in my case, it began really as, as really quite a vague idea of, of uh, examining kind of British foreign and strategic policy in the wake of the Russo-Japanese war in, in Asia and the Pacific. But really quite, quite quickly, I kind of zoned into what, uh, what struck me as the, uh, the much more interesting dynamics that really emerged out of, that, um, out of that conflict, which really had to do less with um, issues of geopolitics and, and strategy and diplomacy as such, but really more how those issues were filtered through um, the idea of race. And the, the project became much more, in the end, about really reckoning with how the image of Japan as a country, um, in one sense, part of that kind of international order, uh, but on the other hand, on account of its, its perceived racial distance, difference to be outside of it, um, 
how those tensions were kind of reflected in um, the diplomacy, uh, the relationship that Britain had with Japan at this time. That, that for me was one of the fascinating parts of your book, because you have on the one hand, this relationship, which is between equals. It, it's an alliance between mm. two powers, which uh, famously sort of see each other as, as, as uh, you know, mirror equivalents and, and just on opposite ends of the same uh large continent and and how the, this is sort of seen as something that can be mutually beneficial but at this but this is happening at a time where you have this incredible uh you know the, these these racial attitudes which are so prevalent and which mm. are so inter really uh, indis, uh uh inseparable from uh imperialism and and how these two you know uh, conflicting aspects are, are, are constantly, you know, at, I don't want to quite say at war with each other, but they're but they're definitely in in some sort of conflict that that uh, that you elaborate that you describe in your book. Yes, absolutely. I mean, in one sense, this is a story of Japan's uh, emergence as a great power and it, it, its integration into an international order, um, which is at this point really primarily just. At the center of it are these European empires, the United States. It's really just a kind of, in one sense, uh, a greater European club of great powers that kind of collectively kind of try to manage uh, um, this imperial world order at the time. And Japan is really the first Asian state that manages to make an entry into that. And as you quite rightly mentioned, there's, there's really two ways that historians have looked at that. Um, the first really kind of revolves around this kind of anchor of the Anglo-Japanese alliance. So in 1902, Britain and Japan um, uh, conduct, basically enter into a treaty of alliance, which, which for, for many reasons is, is kind of seen at the time to be quite a, a revolutionary move. Britain, for its part, had not really entered into these kind of treaties since the Crimean War. So that's almost half a century of really not engaging in these kind of peacetime alliances. But for the Japanese, this is a, uh, a much more kind of far-reaching affair where being allied with um, what is really at the time still the kind of foremost um, power in the imperials, in the, in, the, in the global imperial order, is really kind of seen as a sign that is now finally being recognized as an equal, that that process of inequality of humiliation that they associate with with the unequal treaties uh this kind of forced opening that japan is forced to undergo in the 1850s has finally come to an end and i opened the book with um one scene in 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 tokyo where the uh the the conclusion of the anglo-japanese alliance is being celebrated by this parade of of school children and students that basically come out of, of um, one of the uh, at what is now Keio University and basically tour through the streets of Tokyo um, having the, like bearing these kind of lanterns and singing songs because they're really just so glad um, that Japan has in the sen- in a sense arrived internationally. So that really is kind of and, and that sort of sense of equality, has in one sense also been worked through in how historians have looked at this, right? Um, where historians of the Anglo-Japanese alliance have kind of seen this treaty as a tweet, treaty of equals, as kind of two 
empires coordinating issues of diplomacy and strategy with one another. But as, as you quite rightly say, there's a whole other uh, historical dimension to this, where really at the same time that Japan is integrating, entering this, this international international order, it is also being excluded from it. right? And it is often being excluded by in places um, that are also part of this this empire that it's now allied with. So um, in the book, I go into various uh, kind of sites across the British Empire, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, um, the British outposts in China, where we really see that issue of race, uh, of anti-Japanese uh, racism being, in a sense, mobilized and in a sense, telegraphed back to London um, to, in a sense, challenge and contest this idea that Japan really is an equal part um, of the international system. So it's really that kind of conflicting dynamic where it's not just about kind of issues of diplomacy, but also about the culture surrounding that, that the book is in one sense about. That was another aspect of your book that I thought was really interesting. And it's not something that uh, is reflected in the title or the subtitle, but it's part of this dynamic, which is that it's not, it's, it's primarily a book about the relationship between uh, Great Britain and, and Japan during this period. But there's also this third party in terms of China. And mm-hmm. the, that there, it's, it's sort of a, 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 a contrast or, 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 or an opposite that as you explained, that first chapter really is key to how the British frame is because you don't start in 1902. You start in 1894 mm. with the outbreak of the Sino-Japanese War. How did the Sino-Japanese War uh, begin this process of, 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 of changing, of shaping British attitudes and, and bringing about this alliance? Yes, I, I think you're correct to say that. Um, and in a sense, the, the question that hangs over um, Anglo-Japanese relations in this period. The, th- the thing that really moves these two states closer together and towards the alliance of 1902 is really that question of what is going to happen to the Chinese empire. Um, by this point, uh, um, Britain has fairly extensive um, commercial and, and strategic interests in China. It has um, its kind of base at Hong Kong. It has fairly extensive commercial interests in the hinterland of the Yangtze Valley, which are based at Shanghai. Um, but more especially, well, you mentioned the Sino-Japanese War, which breaks out in 1894, um, which is a war that um, it, it doesn't get an, an awful lot of attention in the historiography. There aren't a lot of good histories out on it in English. Um, but it is a, a really important conflict, really for several reasons that I highlight in the book. I mean, what it first of all does is that it brings out really, um, it, it really delivers to a global audience the fact that Japan has spent the last 30 years driving through this state-led modernization project and has in the process developed uh, a modern army and navy that really ought to be taken quite seriously. And there is kind of this, at the outset of the conflict, sort of I, I cite some some British observers who are fairly ambivalent about what this kind of much smaller island country, which 
thus far in Britain was really known for aesthetic reasons, right? Prior to 1894, most of the commentary uh, about Japan kind of focuses on how lovely its countryside is and sort of what beautiful art is being produced there. But the fact that this country has now also directed this um, effective modernization campaign and is able to inflict a few uh, fairly spectacular victories on China really does drive home the significance that a kind of a new force has arrived um, in East Asia that will have to be taken seriously. And at the same time, it raises in a far more pressing way than had to been, than had been the case before, the issue of what is going to happen to the Chinese empire um, as this new 20th century is opening up. Um, and what you see after 1894 is that there is a number uh, of European states, Britain included, who begin almost to anticipate a, uh, the eventual disintegration and collapse of the Chinese empire and are already beginning to kind of stake out these quasi-territorial claims over the bits of the Chinese empire where they would quite like to sort of preserve their uh, commercial hegemony. Um, so you see the emergence of, of what is sometimes referred to as the Far Eastern question um, during this period. And the historian uh, Thomas Otte has written quite an extensive book about this in which he traces uh, all the sort of diplomatic maneuverings around that. So that was it wasn't my purpose in the book to to really revisit the diplomatic um, the diplomatic meanderings of all the great powers around China, but really to assess how this kind of conflict, this this, this moment of of crisis, of really quite stark changes that are happening to East Asia, how that brings these two powers, Britain and Japan, closer together, and how it really also forces this kind of political as well as cultural re-evaluation of Japan's place in international society. And this re-evaluation is taking place at a time where the uh, white settler colonies in the British Empire are gaining greater independence. And one of the things that they're tackling is that there is this large uh, influx of uh, Chinese and uh, Japanese workers that are coming to these economies, and they're incredibly disruptive. So you describe in that chapter, which I, I love the, the the title of the 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 the, the England's on the opposite end uh, uh, dynamic, or as uh, or actually the uh, the England's of East and West, and and how you, you, so you have the sense that you know a framing which is that of equality, and yet it's including a people that already you're starting to see within the British Empire the sort of concerns being expressed that were previously expressed about the Chinese, you know, that the idea that the Japanese are now going to uh, flood in and, and take over and that this is a threat to the, uh, the, the, the settler, the, the Canadian settler, the Australian settler way of life and, and how this is a threat and, and that the British Empire has to manage this while at the same time maintain this equality with Japan. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I hasten to add, of course, that this... What you begin to see in this period is really the organization of a colonial nationalism that really explicitly orients itself around this idea of a white racial community, right? Um, and an early target of that is is Chinese exclusion, right? At the end of the 
um, Chinese migration uh, is basically is drawn into Australia, Canada, or other settler countries around the Pacific, uh, including the United States as well. Um, so basically, as as vital resources of labor uh, on the the mining frontiers, the agricultural frontiers. But really, what we begin to see in the latter half of the nineteenth century is a process by um, white labor unions and civic organizations to eventually begin to physically exclude the Chinese from their future, from what they see as their future nation states, right? So really from the outset, um, nationalism, what begins to be recognized as colonial nationalism in Australia, New Zealand, British Columbia is very strongly tied up with an idea of racial exclusiveness, basically. Um, And that becomes tied up with Japan really around the same time that Japan begins to come to the fore uh, in this kind of geopolitical arena in East Asia. And that, that really has to do with the fact that the Sino-Japanese War, in one sense, also uh, prompts really rather, in a really rather interesting way uh, an expansion of the Japanese presence in, in the Pacific as well. So um, the war basically, uh, um, as part of this war, uh, China is forced to pay a fairly large indemnity to Japan, um, which it uses to expand its navy. We see at the time that Japanese shipping lanes are beginning to establish new connections to uh, Canada, to Hawaii, to the countries of the uh, of the Pacific. We see Japanese immigration um, beginning to uh, uh, become more of a pronounced factor at the time. So we really see that at this time, Japan begins to kind of replace China as this kind of bogeyman of Chinese nationalism with really one crucial difference, which is that China, or I should say the Chinese, uh, are being stereotyped in uh, these kind of white colonial settings really as this kind of almost amorphous, well, you mentioned flooding in your question. The metaphor of the flood is something that really, uh, that is really kind of pronounced in this discourse, right? So we see uh, a strong emphasis on on Chinese migration being almost this kind of natural phenomenon that sort of overwhelms. There is no little in the way of which this is being set, being tied to China as a state, China as an empire. Japan, on the other hand, is very different. Really, from the outset, Japanese migration is being, for all sorts of reasons, uh, linked semantically, uh, ideologically to the uh, expansion of the Japanese state. So really, what you begin to see in the, in the dominion, in, in, sorry, in the um, white settler colonies of the British Empire is that um, the arrival of Japanese migrants is, is from the outset being associated with the uh, potential of Japanese state expansion, right? There is a sense that the state uh, uh, is, is very closely behind um, these migrants that are that are coming in. Um, so just to give one example, one of the um, Japanese communities, Japanese overseas communities that we see emerging um, around this time in the kind of greater Pacific basin is really a small community of um, pearl fishermen 
on an island on the very north coast of Queensland in Australia. And this is really just a tiny community. We're, fo- we're talking a few hundred people, basically, that are there. Uh, um, some of them um, re- specifically recruited from Japan to work there as pearl divers, others coming in voluntarily. Um, and, and this community, even though it is, it, it's tiny and, and really uh, almost hundreds of miles away from the nearest uh, large center of population, is from the outset being uh, presented and stereotyped in the Australian press as a potential... Um, the phrase is used, a Yokohama on Australian soil. Which, if you think about it, right, that Yokohama at this time is known as a kind of a foreign Western British outpost on in Japan. Uh, there is a sense that this is almost an inversion of a colonization process that is happening, and that behind this this small community of pearl divers really stands uh, this this expanding empire, which has just defeated the Chinese in in in, in really quite a striking way. Um, so really, from the outset, we see an identification of, of Japanese migration um, with the expansionism of the Meiji state, um, which means really that this issue of, of race that I come back into in the book um, time and again, that this is an issue that doesn't, doesn't just begin to matter more during this time because it, it is uh, beginning to play more of a factor in in determining the degree to which Japan is being allowed to integrate into the international order. But it's also a factor that begins to play out on a much larger larger canvas in much more places at once. It's not just an issue that just revolves around the issue of Japan's immediate diplomatic relations with the West, the trading treaties and so on. But it also begins to take in issues of trade and migration uh, that embrace a much larger uh, arena so we see these issues of Japan's international status now also being contested in places like Australia, Canada, uh, later on in um, in uh, China as well. And really, the, the um, although the local dynamics there are, are very different it, at the same uh, at the same time, there is this kind of constant factor. Um, to what degree is Japan being allowed to participate? in international exchange, in international discourse as an equal. And a lot of those uh, questions are, you know, transformed or or, or probably more accurately, uh, you know, given added uh, weight with the Russo-Japanese War. Because you have, with that event, as you described it, it's a watershed in in in, in world history, and it, the closer you get to the region, the the more uh, of an impact it has. So now you have not just the abstract fear, but you have this very real example of Japan defeating a Western power, and with that underscoring uh, for a lot of these people who are concerned about the Japanese, these fears. Well, of course, I, and this is the, the funny part about it, at the same time, uh, you know, illustrating the wisdom of this alliance because Japan has demonstrated that they can really deliver something, but it, it's it's also now some, uh, you know, th- that fear has been that much more accentuated. Yeah, and, and, and as I mentioned earlier, it's, re- it's really this, this, this fascination with the Russo-Japanese War as a conflict that is still 
not really all that well understood, but but still has kind of monumental significance, is seen to have monumental significance at the time. I think it really is. Um, it's a watershed, not just in East Asian history, but it is a being seen at the time as a watershed more generally in the history of um, European colonialism, right? Um, there have been a number of authors who have reconstructed in a really rather interesting way how the example of Japan uh, as this self-directed mo- uh, modernization, modernizing state has now effectively beat the Europeans at its own game. And there are numerous incidences. There is, I mean, there's the example of the Chinese nationalist Sun Yat-sen, right, who in 1911 would um, be one of the leaders of the revolution that overthrows the Qing dynasty. In 1905, he's passing through the Suez Canal and some of the local Egyptian dock workers mistake him for a, a Japanese person and they begin to congratulate him, right? Um, so there, there are, there is this this sense that this is really a memento, momentous event, and at the same time, there's that question that kind of surrounds this conflict. Really, what kind of war is this? Um, and there's really two different perspectives that I emphasize in the book. I mean, on the one hand, really, the Russo-Japanese War is being presented by. Uh, the advocates of the Japanese alliance and by the Japanese themselves, not really as a war that is about race or religion or about the difference between Japan and, 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 and the West. And it, it's, it, it's really presented as none of those things. It's really presented as an effort by um, Japan in its capacity as a guardian of kind of the local uh, international order in East Asia. It's really guard. Um, China and Korea from what is being perceived from effectively Russian aggression, right? Russia um, had in the wake of the, the Boxer uprising in China occupied kind of a large part of, of Russia's, of China's northeastern provinces. It had begun to make certain aggressive moves towards Korea. And this is really the conflict that ends up triggering the outbreak of the Russo-Japanese war in 1904. Um, and the Japanese are quite conscious that you know, the Russians and their supporters in Europe will appeal to that image of the yellow peril, will appeal to the idea that Japan is an alien Asian uh, force in the world and that really what the Europeans ought to do is kind of stand behind Russia as the uh, the guardian of European civilization and all that. Um, and in, in opposition to that, it really appeals to the idea that no, the uh, the Japanese are effectively um, working out these ideals that are uh, at the basis of the Anglo-Japanese alliance, right? the defense of, this, of, of territorial sovereignty, of free trade, of small sea civilization in East Asia. So really for Japan, um, this war is not is being quite consciously presented as not a war that is about race, but it's really about them defending um, a civilized international order against Russian aggression. But really, at the same time, as you quite rightly mentioned, there is that whole right more racialized discourse that this this is uh, uh, that this is in conversation with. That that sense of Japanese aggressiveness is something that you uh, then go on to uh, 
talk about a bit in your next chapter, which it talks about what Japan does in China in the aftermath of the Russo-Japanese War. You have a uh, a, a uh, empire that is uh, you know clearly uh, not on the march is probably a, a, an exaggeration, but but they're definitely uh, you know feeling their strength. There there there's there's a sense that they that they are uh, very much on the rise and. This comes into uh, sometimes conflict with uh, not just British interests, but the British views of the Japanese and the order. Because you describe how, as J- Japan begin, as Japanese uh, actors, uh, uh, military officials, uh, and so forth, begin to. Uh, behave more aggressively in in, in uh, China. That this begins to. Uh, you know, th- this serves as ammunition for those uh, people within the empire who see the Japanese as a, a, a as as a peril to be feared. So, I mean, I go into book in into the ideas and interests that are at the basis of the Anglo-Japanese alliance in 1902, and really, what that alliance is aimed at is, in a sense, keeping keeping the diplomatic ring in East Asia, trying to make sure that primarily Russia, which is a, a major, the major factor of concern for the British government at the time, is kind of deterred from uh, further, further nibbling away at Chinese sovereignty. And in, in one sense, of course, this, this turns out not to work. There is a, a war that breaks out um, in which the Japanese happen to be to be really quite successful. Um, so really what emerges after the year 1905, when Russia is defeated, when it is forced to give up most of its most valuable port and coaling and railway concessions in, in northeastern uh, China, you have a very different situation. And there is some discussion really at, at the, uh, the level of the Japanese cabinet as to what actually should be... Um, should be done about this, right? There is there is some initial discussion that the the railway concessions and so on uh, that Japan has obtained might be sold back to China, that they might be purchased by an international syndicate, but really it, it is in the end the uh, the strategic importance of these lines and the fact that you still have a significant concentration of Russian power right there uh, in. in that remains in Northeast Asia, that ultimately, um, in a sense, forces Japan's hand and forces them to, um, or at least uh, gives the uh, uh, the Japanese government the, the idea that they must, in one sense, uh, begin to play the Russian game for themselves and to take over the role of effectively colonial power in um, uh, the southern half of Manchuria as well as in Korea, by the way, which we haven't talked about so far, but which around this same time is uh, um, incorporate, effectively incorporated as a Japanese protectorate, and it's fully annexed as a colony in 1910. Um, so it really, it, it goes back to that earlier remark that I made of this, the Sino-Japanese War, and then again, you see the same thing happening in the Russo-Japanese War, where... Japan's wartime mobilization, in, in one sense, keeps um, uh, Japanese society mobile in other ways as well. So there is, again, a, a jump in migration, 
uh, in overseas trade and shipping, um, a lot of which is directed towards kind of this new sphere of influence that Japan has acquired in uh, Manchuria and in maritime China, but it goes to other places, uh, other places as well. And as you rightly mentioned, um, this is a, a, a development that is often quite sharply resented. Um, so you have to kind of remember at this time, right, in the, the great trading emporia of, that are dotted around the Chinese, the Chinese coast, Shanghai, Hong Kong, Shenzhen, Hankou, um, these are kind of the, the cities where Western traders and entrepreneurs are, are based and from which they kind of try to tap in to this uh, vast Chinese hinterland. I mean, there's hundreds of millions of people living in China then. Uh, it, it's kind of the largest, seen as kind of the largest um, commercial market still to be fully accessed and developed. Um, and now all of a sudden, these people have to account for the fact that there is uh, this influx of Japanese traders coming into these cities. I mean, there is uh, uh, the Japanese population of Shanghai just skyrockets in these periods. Within a matter of years, there's more Japanese in, 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 in Shanghai than, there, uh, than all the other foreign communities combined. And the Japanese are there on the same legal basis as the British, the French, uh, the Dutch, and so forth. They are there because they have their own unequal treaties with China, which they concluded after the, the Russo-Japanese War, the, the Sino-Japanese War. So really what you have there is you have a situation developing in uh, the treaty ports of China where you have the Japanese and the British um, commercial kind of frontiers are colliding with each other. And you have traders that are there kind of meeting as nominal equals. And there is an immense amount of um, discomfort and resentment that comes out of that on the British side. There's a very keen sense, if I can word this very crudely, um, that Britain has, in a sense, been taken in by the Anglo-Japanese alliance, that it has allowed Japan to effectively acquire... Uh, this position where it begin can begin to outcompete Britain in the uh, in the Chinese market, um, which for a lot of these people defeats the very purpose of the alliance to begin with, right? Because that is to ensure uh, Britain that the uh, that Britain's commercial position in China remains in place. Um, uh, I was going to say the, the the problem is that they really cannot do a whole lot about that in the short term in China, but you have a sim you have a lot of the similar uh, you know, you know, events taking developments taking place with with Chinese migration, or excuse me, with Japanese migration into uh, British Columbia, uh, into Australia, and, and there it's a it, you have a what might think of as a much more raw reaction. We we have a a, yeah. a, a, a much uh, much uh, more elemental reaction, and and how this creates all sorts of problems for 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 the parties involved. Well, there, I mean, there is one example um, where the, the words kind of raw and elemental really do come out, and that is what happens in British Columbia. Um, in the wake of the Russo-Japanese War, there is, uh, again, this increase uh, in, in sort of rule number. I mean, these are... By the way, I, I should sort of emphasize that even... 
even in sort of in terms of absolute numbers, these are uh, even though for Japanese purposes the, the rise in migration is quite steep, right? In places like Hawaii, the uh, Japanese community really sort of doubles, triples in a matter of uh, uh, years after the Russo-Japanese War. But it really, in, in terms of raw numbers, these are not huge amounts of people we're talking about. This, this, these are migration flows that are, by modern standards, really quite still relatively minor. They, they, they are in the kind of tens of thousands of people. Um, but it's really sort of the after the fact that they begin to materialize in uh, the aftermath of the Russo-Japanese War, that they have these kind of associations with um, the ascent of the Japanese state in East Asia, that these migration, uh, uh, that these migrants begin to sort of be perceived in a much more uh, threatening light than might otherwise have been the case. And, and the reaction to that, as you mentioned, is quite visceral. Um, so in 1906, I mean, this is, this is something that American listeners might be more familiar with. There is uh, what's known as the, as the schools crisis in San Francisco, where the, uh, um, uh, the school board in, in, in the city of San Francisco basically uh, segre- uh, commissions an order that, that effectively segregates um, Japanese pupils into separate schools. Uh, this then brings on a diplomatic crisis between uh, Japan and the United States that really begins to sour what had previously been quite a uh, quite a cordial relationship. And by 1907, this also begins to take in um, the British Empire as well. So when the United States effectively closes its borders to Chinese migrants there, uh, pardon, to Japanese migrants. Some of this, um, these migration flows are instead being redirected towards British Columbia and more particularly towards the city of Vancouver. So by the spring of 1907, you begin to have in the city of Vancouver really quite an explosive combination of um, several ships arriving in, in, in a period of, of, of weeks, um, each of them containing a several hundred uh, um, Japanese workers, which are then, I should be say, are being brought in there um, by uh, um, labor contracting firms that are operating out of Vancouver. Um, but the, the response from the, um, the white labor movement is really quite visceral there. And it is in Vancouver in, in, in 1907 that we see um, the largest... Um, the largest anti-Asian race riots in the British Empire to happen really in decades, um, where uh, a uh, <clears throat> an organization, effectively an organization, a uh, uh, an, an organized march by uh, a collection of British Columbian and it should be said American labor unions um, to protest against uh, Asian immigration basically goes awry and um, some of these uh, people sort of uh, enter the Japanese district, begin to run run riots, and there is huge damage to Japanese shop fronts. I mean, there's these kind of heart-wrenching pictures, um, which you can find in the Canadian archives, of um, uh, Japanese shop owners kind of standing in front of their um, destroyed property, basically. So it's really... It becomes raw and visceral there, where there is effectively a move by um, 
an organization that begins to call itself the Asian Exclusion League uh, to effectively turn uh, the Japanese population out of the city. And this then prompts, as you might imagine, right, the fact that this happens in a British colony, while at the same time Britain is still allied to Japan, this, this hugely complicates um, this relationship that these two powers have. It, it, it doesn't just complicate that relationship, though. It also complicates the relationship between Britain and those colonies. And that, that was a dynamic that I hadn't really thought about until I read your book, which is that it, you know, those colonies were in this relationship where their defense ultimately devolved upon Great Britain. Mm-hmm. Is that, you know, if they were in danger, the idea was that the British government in, in the form of the, the, the Royal Navy, the army, would be there to protect them. And yet now you have this relationship where the, you know, the, that, you know, they, they, there's a sense of can they really rely upon the British mm-hmm. because the British are, are in effect, you know, now relying upon the, the, the country that these very people are from to shoulder part of that burden of defending yeah. their empire. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I, I just thought this is, it was such a, a fascinating dynamic and, and it gets into – the the, compl- the the complicated relationship that the British are now in. I, I was especially fascinated by when you talk uh, later in the book about how Australia mm-hmm. has this has this uh, a, a more muted but 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 in many ways similar backlash, and yet at the same time when the you have Japanese naval ships showing up on 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 a tour that they're not they're 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 not viewed with cold indifference they're they're not treated with hostility they're 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 welcomed and celebrated as 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 global politics begins to shift in ways where the Australians now look you know begin to have that you know, had that more complicated view of, of, of what Japan has to offer. Well, one way to think about this is, I suppose, of, of, of a general, it, it's not an elegant word, but a, a general hardening of and, and, and coagulation of the international order in the Pacific. So if you were, if, if you were an Australian uh, politician, um, by the end of the 19th century, sort of as you're kind of looking out from Melbourne or City, Sydney or Brisbane, what is it that you're seeing? Well, you know, in, in previous centuries, you might have seen a relatively kind of open ocean, right? Um, but really, around the turn of the centuries, you, century, you really find yourself in um, this increasingly crowded looking uh, geopolitical arena where suddenly you have Japan becoming more of a factor, uh, reaching outwards through trade, migration, and so on. You have Russia uh, um, finishing its, its, its Trans-Siberian Railway and building a naval base in Vladivostok. You have the United States making a leap across the Pacific in 1898, annexing Hawaii, the Philippines. So really, this is, this is a map that, even though it's, it, it's, the Pacific is a really big place, but then again, Australians think in, you know, they inhabit a big continent and they're kind of used in terms of thinking in, in terms of scale, right? Well, I, I mean, it, it's not a frivolous argument, right? Because in one sense, if that sense of, 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 of distance, right, of being located half a world away from what most Australians still think of as the mother country, and inhabiting a, a country on a continental scale with only 4 million people, it, it, it really does something for this kind of sense of 
the, the, the geopolitical scale on which uh, uh, many Australian commentators are kind of thinking at the time. And they're really thinking in terms not of this kind of more European sense of kind of competing nation states. No, they are thinking in terms of um, a world of races. And that sounds very crude, but it, it is something that, that you can take almost literally um, from the commentary at the time, really. If um, really here at the kind of the shores of the Pacific, the, the, the world looks different and the kind of fundamental forces that are animating world politics look different. So I say that by way of a preliminary, um, because at the same time, it is very clear to Australians that they now kind of ha- inhabit the same kind of oceanic space as Japan, even though the two of them are still kind of miles away from each other. So what you really begin to get out of that is really quite a complicated response, where at, at, in one sense, there is a really firm and continued commitment to exclude Japanese migrants from Australia. That is a, a constant factor that really runs through this entire period. But at the same time, there is a recognition that the, this, this decision, this policy of exclusion comes with uh, diplomatic repercussions. And that you can't just say to the Japanese, well, you just can't come here, right? And we're just going to thumb our noses up at you. Notice that this is a country that you have to have diplomatic relations with. Relations with, And in one sense, this is new, right? The first um, foreign embassy that uh, Canada sends out is uh, a, an embassy to Japan to uh, um, deal with this migration issue. Right. In one sense, the first diplomatic exchanges that the country of Australia, right, Australia federates in 1901 into uh, uh, a single commonwealth, the first diplomatic exchanges it has are with the Japanese consul on the migration issues. So there's a sense that these countries are, in a very meaningful sense, neighbors. So yeah, I, I, I go into the book of, really, I introduce this by looking at an episode which in one sense seems rather contradictory, but which kind of makes sense as part of this larger story which is when uh, uh, a Japanese, um, a detachment from the Japanese Navy visits Australia in 1906, and they're kind of celebrated and sort of welcomed into uh, uh, balls and, and joint maneuvers, and there is a kind of great parade that runs through Sydney and then through Melbourne, where the Japanese are part of. But it kind of makes sense if you think about it in terms of, no, this, this, is, this is the Australians trying to on the one hand, sort of get beyond the migration issue and at the same kind of trying to prove to the world that they themselves are capable of engaging in this kind of diplomacy, in this kind of spectacle. So it's a story also of uh, of colonial nation building, which is really trying to kind of wrestle through um, the diplomatic and international repercussions of the... Uh, um, of the racialized idea around which it's organized. And it, it seems that global politics is forcing them to do this because as you describe in your final, ch- in your final chapter, what's really, uh, what you start to see as you approach 1914 is that imperial, those imperial concerns are becoming more predominant within Britain itself. And it's not that they're, that they're going to cut loose Australia, but there's this very cold calculation of, well, ultimately protecting Great Britain is going to 
uh, matter more than the concerns of a few Australians about you know ja- about uh, having a few more Japanese fishermen. And in that respect, we need Japan's friendship more than we need to keep you know a, a, a few you know rowdies uh, <laughs> uh, you know happy. So we're going to go ahead and 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 you know prioritize that. And Australia is in effect, accepting that they need to come to terms with this on their own. And almost that they're beginning to realize that there's coming a point where their interests and Britain's interests are diverging. They're not there yet, but they can definitely see it on the horizon. Yeah. And, and, and in that sense, I mean, this is in a sense a, um, a key component of the uh, like, part of the original idea for the book was to use the what is being referred to as the time as the Japanese question as a prism to really split apart um, some of the different ways in which people across the British world at the time are thinking about what the empire is and what the empire is for, whose interests should it serve. And I I think, I mean, in one sense, that the point you make about no, uh, um, the standard story here really is the one that you've just kind of articulated, which, which is that um, the fundamental issue facing the British Empire at the time is the, uh, the escalating naval race with Germany. Um, Japan helps that by uh, removing the need to maintain a large British naval presence in the Pacific. So therefore, the Anglo-Japanese alliance is worth having. Well, that makes sense from one perspective. But, you know, as you've mentioned, the, the, the view from from the British Pacific looks very different. And really we, what we get during this period is not just kind of, at, at the surface level, these are kind of debates about um, who, what the kind of strategic priorities of the empire should be. Should it be Europe and the North Sea and Germany or, 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 and Japan and the Pacific? But what informs those ideas, those, those conflicts, is really a much more fundamental divergence in the idea of what the empire is and what the empire is for. Because what we really begin to see during this period is not so much the onset of, I mean, it's often been defined this period as the onset of colonial nationalism. And in one sense it is, but it's also um, a nationalism that expresses itself um, through these kind of racial and imperial terms. So what Australians are, in a sense, asking for is, is, not, just a, is not just more ships of, in the Pacific. Yes, they're asking for that. But they're asking in a much more fundamental sense that the idea of a white Australia, and you can replicate this white, a white Canada, a white New Zealand, is being recognized by the British as fundamental to the future of the empire. They're basically asking that their version of imperialism, which is the the settler idea, the idea of empire very closely tied to race, that this is effectively the idea, uh, the version of imperialism that should prevail. And we've taken, oh, sorry. No, no, please. Uh, I was going to say, we've taken a lot of your time, but before we go, could you uh, tell us what you're working on now? Um, Well, the book, in one sense, kind of raised the these kind of larger questions for me of of race in the international order it also raised the degree to which um different empires um 
um, which we sorry we see ideas of racial solidarity sort of being propagated within empires, right? That that's in a sense what this this book was about: how the idea of race at one point unifies but also complicates um, the governance of the British Empire. Um, the next project, in a sense, is is also kind of takes that slightly beyond the confines of the British Empire, and I'm, I'm in a sense more interested in how. Um, ideas of race kind of con, uh, uh, begin to kind of underpin collaboration between empires as well. So one episode that we haven't talked about in this interview very much, but which kind of is at the heart of, of kind of where the next project is going, is uh, the Boxer Uprising in, 19, uh, in 1900, which is also an episode in which Japan participates. Um, but this is, this is a kind of proto-nationalistic uprising in uh, northern China, which is aimed against sort of expelling foreign missionaries and foreign commercial interests. Um, and it, it, it provokes a response really not just from, say, the British, the Japanese, and the Russians and, and powers that are kind of directly interested in, but really from all the different European countries that have interests in China. Um, and what you see is this kind of collective exercise in uh, in imperialism, where you have these kind of eight countries acting together to uh, retake Beijing from the boxers. Um, so really, I'm I'm really quite interested in that. Sort of, we often see empires as um, competitive entities, right? Um, where a lot of the historiography on this issue is kind of pre- uh, uh, preoccupied with. Uh, empires competing for territory. But in many ways, and it, I would argue in really a much more fundamental way, um, empires are also part of the same collaborative project. And they do sort of see each other in those terms. And there is, I think, um, something like inter-imperial solidarity at work in, in, in a lot of these um, cases. So the next project is really sort of about exploring that and finding a few examples where we can see that dynamic at work. Well, that sounds like a fascinating project. And I hope that when you complete it, uh, that you can come back on the show and uh, share your findings with us. Well, that meant I was able to write a new book about it. So I, <laughs> that would be a fortunate thing for me. Well, Case, uh, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I uh, hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you, Mark. <laughs>